Good morning. Welcome to West Hills. My name is Will Devon, I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, if you're newer, I want to say a special welcome to you and thank you for being with us. Got to meet a few new faces this morning, and I uh, would love to chat with you a little bit more after the service. Um, if you're able to hang around and introduce yourself in the foyer, um, we also uh, have an info bar out these double doors where they'd love to meet you as well and uh, get a record of your attendance, give you a small little gift for being with us. Speaking of sticking around after the service, um, if you're not new, well, if you are new, you're invited as well, but we're going to be doing a, a volunteer, a, a ministry fair uh, after the service today. That's why you see, um, you know, the, the labels back here at the AV booth, and uh, you should have got something in your bulletin about that as well. Um, Pastor Thad will come out up during announcements at the end and say uh, even more about that. Uh, but we invite you to stick around. We, uh, I, I announced at our annual meeting uh, last week after the service that um, we have 74% of our folks here at West Hills serving every week somewhere. That's great. That's wonderful. So this event is especially for the 26% of you. Uh, we we want to be a 100% kind of church. So if you're not serving somewhere already, we'd love to get you plugged in. Don't have to be a member. Uh, we've, we've got a job for you. We'd love to, to put you to work here. So um, stick around for that. Uh, but this morning is our third Sunday in our uh, four-part Advent sermon series entitled Unheralded Heralds, in which we are examining the lives and examples of four of the most obscure uh, characters in Jesus's nativity story, but with an eye toward what each of them has to teach us about our own calling from the Lord to herald the good news. So uh, two weeks ago, we looked at uh, the, the character of the priest, Zechariah. Last week was his, his wife, Elizabeth. This morning will be Simeon, and next week will be Anna. And each of them was called in their own way to announce the good news of Christ coming into the world. Likewise, Jesus has now left us, the church, here on earth to proclaim the good news of not only his birth, but of his life, his death, his resurrection, his offer of eternal life for all who would turn from their sin and trust in him as Lord and Savior. Jesus calls us, invites us, allows us the, the joy of heralding that good news to all nations, Matthew 28, to take it to every corner of the earth, Matthew 24, indeed to all of creation, Mark 16. And so, what does it take to be a faithful herald? Well, Zechariah taught us that first you have to believe. You can't, well, pass on a message that you don't believe. And so first and most importantly, you have to personally receive Christ for yourself. Last week, his wife Elizabeth showed us that the most effective heralds will not only believe, but will be righteous, humble, worshipful, obedient, spirit-filled, blessers of others. And this morning, we're going to fast forward half of a chapter in uh, the Christmas story, about a month later in the story, we'll, we're going to back up and, and celebrate the events of the first 21 verses of Luke chapter 2, of course, at our Christmas Eve services. And so, quick plug for that as well, I do hope that you will not only make plans now to join us on uh, December 24th for one of those services, but also start inviting your family and friends to join us as well. That is a, a, always a, a beautiful service and a wonderful outreach opportunity in particular. 
as you probably know as well as I do, you know, there are a lot of folks out there, your family, friends, neighbors, coworkers, who, uh, who don't go to church. That's just not even on their radar. But on Christmas and Easter, call it tradition, call it, you know, whatever it is, uh, they, they will be willing to join you. And so let's take those opportunities. Speaking of sharing the good news, invite them to be here to celebrate Jesus' birth with us. But this morning, we're going to turn our attention to uh, Luke chapter 2, and specifically verses 22 through 35, and our third unheralded herald here, Simeon. And so I would invite you uh, to stand with me as you're able for the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading from the ESV. I have words on the screen in front of you. We do have Bibles for you as well. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to, to bless you with one of those at the info bar after the service. But hear the Word of the Lord this morning. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him, Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And now, God, I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts may be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Good timing. And if all my prayers ended that way, just <clears throat> talk, talk about spirit-filled. Uh, I, have, I have five attributes for you this morning of a faithful herald of God's word um, and his message from Simeon's example. But before we even meet Simeon in verse 25, I do want us to note together a bonus virtue that is displayed here by Mary and Joseph by the parents of Jesus specifically in verses 22 through 24. 
This is uh, not even in your bulletins. This is, like I said, just a bonus. But in the context leading up to Mary and Joseph's exchange with Simeon, we get this bonus virtue for us as heralds. And that is simply that God does not care one bit about your power, your prestige, your position. God is after your piety. Consider God's choice here of Mary and Joseph to be Jesus' parents, his caretakers, his most formative influencers throughout his early formative life. Luke doesn't tell us a lot about them, but what we do know, even from these three short verses, is that Mary and Joseph were poor, but they were pious. Verse 22, when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, that's from Leviticus 12, 6 through 8, and then continuing in verse 23, as it is written, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. That's a law from Exodus 13, verse 2. And so without getting into the specifics of these Old Testament instructions, what is significant for our purposes here is simply that Mary and Joseph were devoted followers of God's law. They were pious. And we saw this last week with Elizabeth's example of righteousness and obedience, that that is what God is after. Not our power or our status. Mary and Joseph were poor. We know this because their purification offering here of two birds, that was the exception clause made in Leviticus 12 for those who were too poor to afford a lamb, which, by the way, was not all that expensive. So I shared with you at last week's annual meeting that we are currently searching for new leaders to replace some of our current leaders, elders and deacons at this church whose terms will end in 2022. And I know that many churches out there would start that recruiting process by checking the finances. Who gives what? And I would just tell you that that may be how it works in every other walk of your life at your work, at your country club, the other nonprofit boards you serve on, even at home. It's the golden rule, right? The one who makes the gold gets to make the rules. But at this church, all the money in the world will not buy you a seat at the leadership table. Because we're not after the powerful, the prestigious, those with position. Like God, we're looking for the pious, not the prosperous. First Samuel 13, 14. God says he seeks men and women after his own heart to lead his people. With that said, of course, whether or not you give to the church, that does say something about your piety and your obedience. God has commanded us to give generously in his word. So Mary and Joseph do make their humble offering, but that is just one marker of their piety. So, with that as the context for meeting Simeon, let's shift our focus here to him in verse 25, his example. He's described as a man in Jerusalem, also righteous and devout. And since we hit those qualities last week with Elizabeth, righteousness, obedience, I want to hone in here on this next description of him for point number one, that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. 
What does that mean? Number one, the first feature of a faithful herald for this morning is that they look for the Lord. Heralds look for the Lord. Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, historically, we know that there was quite a bit of messianic fervor at this time in first century Judea. The Jewish people had been living under Roman oppression brutally for some 60 years at this point. But before Rome even, it was the Seleucid dynasty. Before them, it was the Greeks. Before them, it was the Persians. Before them, it was the Babylonians. Before them, it was the Assyrians. Basically, Israel had not experienced unity and peace and self-governance for almost a thousand years since the time of the, the united monarchy. And so by the time of Christ's birth, the Jews were ready for a Messiah. But here's the thing I want to emphasize this morning. There's a big difference between wanting a Messiah and waiting for a Messiah. I want another child, but I'm not holding my breath. Polly and I have been trying for over eight years now. We've got one kid to show for it, of our own making at least, we adopted our son, of course. Israel had wanted a Messiah for a thousand years since the time of King David. But it's hard to wait on pins and needles with genuine hopeful anticipation for that long. And so the ones who did, they were by and large waiting for a Messiah like David, a, a powerful warrior king who would show up guns blazing to overthrow Caesar and to free Israel from their political bondage. And so this day in the temple when Mary and Joseph came carrying one-month-old baby Jesus, there were a lot of folks who wanted Messiah to come. There may have even been others there in the temple that day that were waiting for Messiah, but they weren't looking for a newborn baby born to a couple of poor, inauspicious Galileans. But Simeon was different. Simeon knew that God works in mysterious ways. Isaiah 55, verse 9. That in the Old Testament, when the prophet, prophet Habakkuk prayed, God, how long do I have to cry out to you for help? The Lord answered him, I am doing a work in your days that you would not even believe if I told you. I imagine God's conversation with Simeon going something like that. Verse 26 tells us that God had revealed to Simeon that he would not see death before he had seen the Messiah. And I imagine Simeon uh, re replying, asking, Lord, how will I know the Messiah when I see him? And God responding, Simeon, you wouldn't even believe me if I told you what this Messiah is going to look like. And so instead, I'm going to show you. When the time's right, I'll send my spirit to reveal the Christ to you. And yet, in the meantime, Simeon, I'm calling you to wait, to watch, to trust in my promise. God expects that same waiting, watching of us today. Jesus promised us that he would return to earth, Matthew 24, to judge the living and the dead. And Jesus said, therefore, you must be ready. How do we stay ready? 
Jesus answers that in the next chapter, Matthew 25. He says, you must watch for you know neither the day nor the hour. Hebrews 9.28 puts it this way. Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save who? Those who are eagerly awaiting him. That's who Jesus is coming back to save. Those eagerly waiting for him. How do we eagerly wait? Jesus explains that in the very next passage in Matthew 25 with a parable. It tells a story of a man who goes on a journey and he called servants and entrusted them with his property. To one he gave five talents, to another he gave two, to another one talent. A talent was a unit of money in Jesus' day equivalent to 20 years' wages for a common laborer. And most of us know the rest of the story. At some time in the future, the master returned and he expected a return on his investment. And the moral of the story is clear that Jesus, our master, has entrusted you and I, church, with something far more valuable than 20 years worth of wages. We have the gospel, the infinitely valuable, eternal life-giving soul-saving news of Christ's death and resurrection for sinners. He has entrusted it to his church, and he said, now go make disciples. Go be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And then Jesus journeyed back to heaven for a time, but he said he's returning. And when he does, everyone who claimed to be his follower, who is entrusted with this all-important message of the gospel is going to hear one of two things from their master according to Matthew 25. It's either well done, good and faithful servant, enter the joy of your master, or it's cast that worthless servant into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. If you can't, if you can't bring a return on investment, you're a worthless servant. Brothers and sisters, are we looking for the Lord? Do we actively ask the Lord to to provide opportunities for us to invest the gospel into the hearts of others? And then, do we eagerly expect him to answer those prayers? Do you expect Jesus to answer that request in unexpected ways, like Simeon did? Simeon's peers, they wanted God to show up, but only on their terms, the kind of Messiah that they were looking for. Some of us are fine with God providing opportunities for us to witness to others, to herald the gospel, as long as it's on our terms. We've got to have a relationship with a person because it's awkward to talk about your faith with a total stranger. And yet, not too much of a relationship because if I share the gospel with those closest to me, I might risk offending them and jeopardizing the relationship. It's got to be on our terms. But what if that's exactly the person that God wants to use you to witness to, to reach the person closest to you, your unbelieving wife of 30 years, the most unfamiliar person to you, the waiter you just met five minutes ago at lunch? Do we look for God to provide opportunities for us to witness in unexpected ways? I heard a pastor friend put it this way once. I don't live this way, but I should. I think we all should. He said, I assume that God wants 
everyone around me to hear the gospel and that he may very well want to use me to be the one to share it with them unless God makes it clear otherwise. In other words, most of us ask God to open a door for evangelism, for heralding. What if we assumed instead that God always wants to leave the door open unless he makes it really clear otherwise that he's shutting a door? Because he wants everyone to know the good news of Jesus. We need to eagerly anticipate to look for the Lord to move through us into the lives of those around us who do not yet know him. Number two, we need to live unto the Spirit. A herald will live unto the Spirit. We emphasized the importance last week of being a Spirit-filled blesser uh, in, in the example of Elizabeth, and so I'll be somewhat brief on this point. But we do need to see here with Simeon in verses 25 through 27, three times, three times the Holy Spirit is mentioned for emphasis. Verse 25, the Holy Spirit was upon him. Verse 26, it had been revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit. Verse 27, he came in the Spirit into the temple. Simeon was a Spirit-filled man. And more than that, he, he lived unto the Spirit. He walked in the Spirit. Every Every true follower of Christ has the Holy Spirit living inside them. Ephesians 1.13 promises that when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Jesus, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. So you, if you're a Christian this morning, born again, believer in Christ, you have God's Spirit living inside you. That's amazing. And yet, God gives us the choice whether to live unto the, that, this, that Spirit or to live unto the flesh, our old, dead, sinful, unregenerate nature. We can walk in the Spirit or we can walk in the flesh. See, as Christians, we now have two natures if you've been born again, you're born a first time biologically in the flesh, into sin. You don't have to teach a baby to be self-centered, to be sinful. Every parent knows this. It just comes naturally. That's the flesh. But believers have born, been born a second time in the spirit. And those two natures are now at odds with one another, at war, the apostle Paul describes it in Romans chapter 7. He says, I don't understand my own actions. I don't do what I want. I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I don't want, it's no longer I who do it. I mean, my identity is now in Christ. That's the real me, the new me. The old, the old creation is supposed to be gone. The new has come. That's, that's, the, that's how I want to live. But he says, it's not I who do it. Now it's sin who dwells in me. It's the flesh. It's my old flesh at war with my new spirit nature. So how do we fight this war and live into the spirit? Well, for starters... Paul says we've got to preach the gospel to ourselves. Like before we even have a shot of heralding the gospel to anyone else, we've got to wake up every single day and preach it to ourselves, as Paul does right after that passage in Romans 7 and in the beginning of chapter 8. He says, wretched man that I am. Like I, I, I'm, I'm conflicted. I'm, I've got a divided heart. I'm at war with myself. Wretched man, who will deliver me from this body of death, the flesh? 
then he says, he answers his own question, thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord who delivered me. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, God condemned sin in the flesh for us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. He says, for to set the mind on the flesh is death but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. And so Paul exhorts us, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body and the flesh, you will live. That's how we live unto the Spirit. How do you know that you've done it? How do you know that you're living according to the Spirit, walking in the Spirit? Remember what Jesus said, you'll know a tree by its fruit, right? You examine the fruit. Are you producing the fruit of the flesh or the fruit of the Spirit? Galatians 5, Paul says, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now the works of the flesh, the fruit of the flesh, is evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Sin. He said, I warn you that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit, what it produces is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and things like these. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So if you're a born-again follower of Jesus this morning, you've got the Spirit. Now, don't quench it. Live unto it by crucifying your flesh and walking in the Spirit. Number three, an effective herald has to lead with boldness. must lead with boldness. Look back at verses 27 and 28 with me. Simeon, filled with the Spirit, he grabs baby Jesus right out of Mary's arms. He doesn't ask for permission, at least not that we see here. He just snatches him. That takes boldness. And then he starts prophesying right there in the middle of the temple courtyard. He must have looked like a crazy person. Everybody else is Looking for the biggest, strong, you know, like that story when, when uh, God anointed Saul. The people wanted a king like all the other kings, the biggest, strongest dude. That's who they were looking for to walk into the temple, their Messiah, to come in and overthrow Rome. And here comes Simeon holding up this poor, impoverished, fragile, tiny little, weak baby. And quoting Messianic Old Testament prophecies. He must have looked crazy. But the Holy Spirit doesn't typically empower people to be eminently rational. In fact, frequently in the Bible, when the Holy Spirit comes upon someone, they do utterly irrational things, bold things, like grab a donkey jawbone and kill a thousand Philistines. That was Samson. Or speaking of donkeys, God's Spirit might make one of them talk. It was Balaam's ass. 
Or the spirit might compel a king to dance for God with all his might, half naked through the middle of the town square. It was David. But most often in the New Testament, when a person is filled with the spirit, it is to bring them boldness, specifically in heralding the gospel. Acts 4.31, we hear the apostles were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This was after they'd been arrested and threatened with death, imprisonment, beaten and released, told never to talk about Jesus again. They said, look, you, you do what you got to do to us, but I got to hire authority here. I'm going to keep preaching. And they were filled with boldness from the Spirit. Ephesians 6, pray at all times in the Spirit that I may boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 3, because of the ministry of the Spirit, we are very bold. 2 Timothy 1, God gave us a spirit not of fear but of power to share in the suffering for the gospel. Acts 28.31, Paul was filled with the Spirit, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. What would it look like if this church, the 300 or so of us here at West Hills, were all to lead with boldness in our evangelism to the lost? God turned the world upside down with 12 guys and his spirit, spirit of boldness. What might he do with the 300 or so of us? Are we praying for it? Are we looking for God to move? Are we asking him, Father, may we boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel today. Would you give us that joy to share it with others? Number four, a faithful herald must first listen to God's word. Before you can lead with boldness, before you can even be filled with the Spirit, you've got to listen to God's word. I alluded to this already, but Simeon's prophetic words here are taken almost straight out of the Old Testament. He declares, my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Isaiah 52.10 says, all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Psalm 98.3, all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Simeon, again, in verse 32 says, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. The Messiah is a glory to your uh, people Israel. Isaiah 49.6 says, God promises of the Messiah, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Almost word for word out of the Old Testament. Even the one line that Simeon didn't pull from the Old Testament when he says, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace. Even that, he tells us in verse 29, was according to your word. He was listening to God's word. That time it was God directly giving this promise to Simeon. Prophecy, revelation to him. But he's listening for God's word. And the principle for us here is clear. That, that Simeon had prepared himself to be a vessel useful to God in heralding his good news. Not only by walking according to the spirit, but by internalizing God's word. If we want to be useful, a blessing to others, to bless them with the gospel, we've got to prepare ourselves first by internalizing God's word. Doesn't mean you've got to memorize 
scripture and be able to quote every chapter and verse for people if they ask. But we need to, to meditate, marinate in God's word. Simeon knew these prophecies like the back of his hand. That's why he was looking for the Lord, why he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, because he was a diligent student of God's word. The most passionate, faithful evangelist among us will be the most fervent, devoted consumers of God's word. Consumers. Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We need to eat it. This has got to be our breakfast, our lunch, and our dinner. Paul said we've got to be nourished by the words of the faith, 1 Timothy 4, 6. David exclaimed in the Old Testament, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth, Psalm 119, 103. So, humble request, Please don't introduce your reflections at Life Group this next week by saying what I found interesting in the reading this past week. If you want interesting, go watch Squid Game. If you want to survive spiritually for another week, for another day, then open God's Word. God didn't go to the trouble of verbally inspiring this book so that you and I could be interested. He did it to bring us to life, to make us alive. 1 Peter 1.23, you have been born again through the living, abiding word of God. And then to keep us alive, this is how God sustains his people. Psalm 119.92, if your word had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. And the word not only gives life to us as believers, it ought to naturally motivate us to share that life-giving sustenance with others as well. What's the first thing you do after you go out and eat the best meal you've ever tasted in your life? You want to tell people, don't you? You want to share it. Pastor Brian came into the office a couple weeks ago. He's like, guys, have you tried salt and smoke we're like, of course we have, Brian. That's the best barbecue in town. But he, he, he just couldn't help himself. He had to tell us about how good his meal was. How much more so when we encounter people every day who are spiritually famished, who are eternally starving to death. And we know where they can feast free of charge. Isaiah 55 God himself invites us. He says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. All the other Restaurants in town you're running to spiritually to try and fill that void in your heart. Are they satisfying you? Of course not. Listen diligently to me, God says, and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. We've got to listen to God's word if we're even going to live, survive for another day. That's how you introduce your reflection sharing time at Life Group. 
We need to listen to God's word. And then as messengers of that word, we lovingly invite others to do the same. We invite them to the feast as well. Finally, number five. A herald must let them have it. Couldn't ruin the alliteration. Let them have it. Bless others with the truth. You let them have it by blessing people with the truth. Consider Simeon's closing blessing here of Mary and Joseph. Use that intentionally in scare quotes. Verses 33 through 35, he says, This child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. Translation, Mary and Joseph Many in Israel, his own people, will oppose your son. They will reject him as their Messiah, and their fall or rise will be determined by their acceptance or rejection of him as Messiah, respectively. Verse 35, he says, And a sword will pierce through your own soul as well. Mary, this baby is going to grow up and break your heart on the cross. When you lose him. Verse 35. And the thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. Jesus claimed in John 3 that he was the light of the world who came to expose our thoughts, feelings, actions, motivations. But Jesus also said that people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Now, take all that together. At first glance, This doesn't seem like very much of a blessing, does it? People are going to hate your son, Mary, because he's going to reveal the deepest, darkest secrets of their wicked hearts. And oh, by the way, he's going to break your heart as well. Be blessed. But every word of Simeon's prophecy proved true. And friends, the truth, even when it's difficult truth that we don't want to hear, it's a blessing. Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It's a blessing. Look, if you pull people and ask them if you had something stuck between your teeth out at a party, would you rather someone just pull you aside and tell you? Nine out of ten people say yes. Give me the truth. Even if you're a total stranger, let me have it. Because I might be embarrassed for about a minute, you know, thinking about all the people I've talked to the past 10 minutes now, looking silly. But better that than getting all the way home tonight to my bathroom mirror and realizing I spent all night long looking this way. And yet, only a fraction of those same people are willing to be that kind of a good friend to someone else, especially if the person is a total stranger. I won't tell you that you've got something stuck between your teeth. How hypocritical is that? We're such hypocrites. We want people to tell us the uncomfortable truth, but we don't want to risk our comfort to tell them. Here's the thing. It's a whole lot more uncomfortable to tell somebody that they're a sinner deserving of an eternal hell and that they're headed there too if they don't repent and trust in Jesus. You're right. That that can make things uncomfortable and awkward. And yet, every single one of us here 
who has ever heard that gospel truth and believed it eventually is glad that someone else risked their comfort to tell us, aren't we? The truth is a blessing. Here's how Penn Gillette of the uh, magician duo Penn and Teller, outspoken atheist, here's how he put it. He said, I don't respect people who don't proselytize, i.e. Harold. He said, I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, even if I don't believe it, if you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate someone not to proselytize? How much do you have to hate them to believe everlasting life is possible and not to tell them? I mean, if I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point in time where I just tackle you, he said. And this is more important than that. He's an atheist. He says, I'll never fault you for telling me. And yet, brothers and sisters, here's how I want to end. We don't just have the duty of warning unbelievers of the bad news. We have the delight. We get the delight of telling them the good news. That the hope of Romans 5 verse 8 could be theirs, could be a blessed truth of theirs personally as well. That while they were yet sinners, otherwise headed for hell and deserving every flame that, that lies there, Christ died for them. That's good news. We get to share it. What could be a greater blessing than heralding that truth? You know the joy you get when we're sitting around that staff meeting table hearing about Brian's experience, his first taste of salt and smoke, and the joy of knowing that I introduced him to it. Imagine that, only it's eternal life in heaven. What a joy to know that you've played by God's grace some small part in him redeeming another lost soul. May we never grow weary of heralding the gospel and blessing others with the truth.